Well, it's our habit here at Grace Church, and some of you are very aware of this, uh, that we like to preach through the Bible. And uh, normally we preach through it consecutively, week by week, book by book, chapter by chapter. But every now and then, it's good to look at what the Bible says on a particular topic. Um, And sometimes we need to do that because maybe there's a pressing issue, and we've got lots of questions on it. And so we might hit a topic. Um, uh, Maybe... uh, yeah, maybe there's something that's just live in the life of the church. Or maybe there are just some things that it's just good to come back to um, and just look at time and time again. Well, this morning we're considering God and relationships. It is one of those things, isn't it? It's helpful to come back to now and then. Because we all want relationships, don't we? Uh, we want friendships. We want camaraderie. We want companionship. After all, the God of the Bible, as Anthony reminded us earlier, is the God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the God of relationship, the God of love. And he has made us to enjoy that too. So it's good for us to consider this whole area of relationships. Not least of all, of course, because sometimes we get this area wrong, uh, don't we? See, relationships are, are good. But the trouble with good things is that we can sometimes turn good things into God things. We can live as if relationships are so important that it's like they're God in our lives, like we live for them and it's the only thing and it's the ultimate. We can make idols out of relationships. And I think we know, don't we, that's not good for us. That's not good for others. And it's not right before God either. So we want to get our thinking straight on relationships. We want to hear then what God says. We want the Lord to set us right. We want to hear of his beautiful design for relationships to replace that which is false and wrong in our minds. And since the Bible talks primarily about romantic relationships in terms of marriage, we're going to think about marriage this morning. We're going to think about what marriage isn't, and we're going to think about what marriage is. And before you switch off and think that isn't relevant to me, let me say there's going to be something here for all of us. So um, keep, keep, keep in tune. So two things this morning. Firstly, then, what marriage isn't. What marriage isn't. Marriage has a purpose, uh, but I want to say something that may be shocking for you. Marriage has a purpose, but its purpose is not to be the remedy for loneliness. Marriage is not supposed to be, or is not for, should I say, fixing loneliness. You say, that's odd, Ollie. Because that's kind of what it looks like it's for. And and, and isn't that what the Bible says? I mean, didn't we just have that in the Bible reading? Well, let's look at it. Come with me, please, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, page 2 of the Bible. God has made man. And the Lord God said, verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the question for us is, how do we understand that verse? Man should not be alone. It kind of sounds like God is trying to fix loneliness. But notice what else God says. God says, I will make Adam a what? A helper. See, Adam needs Eve not to fix loneliness. No, he's got fellowship with God in the garden, hasn't he? He needs Eve to help him with a task. He's got a task set for him that he cannot deal with on his own. Adam needs help. Help with what? What was the task given to Adam? Look back at chapter 2 for me, please. 
And just look back a few verses. Verse 15. What did God say to Adam? The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam is to rule paradise. He's to care for paradise. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'd do a fairly lousy job of that on my own. I I can barely look after probably one patch of grass in a garden, let alone paradise, right? So he's on his own in it. But actually, it's even bigger than that. So would you flick back again, another page, back to page one of your Bibles, and see what God uh, told Adam in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. God made humanity, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see, humanity is supposed to care for the whole world. Humanity is supposed to spread out and be creative and make the world flourish. And, and as it were, the Garden of Eden is to expand over the whole world. And Adam is just one Man, do you see? Do you see? Google tells me the surface area of planet Earth is something like 500 million square kilometers. Um, Now, only 29% of that is land. So that's 150 million square kilometers. Anyone manage that? Okay. And the sea isn't excluded anyway, does it? Because it says to have dominion over the fish of the sea. So no, it's all 500 million square kilometers. Do you see? This task is totally overwhelming. (laughs) For Adam, he cannot rule and care for the world on his own. The problem with Adam being alone is that this job is simply too big for him. The problem isn't that he is lonely. The problem is he can't do this job on his own. He could do with a team. He could do with a partner. He could do with children, more people to help. He could do with a bit of order, little teams to go about doing it. And you see then that is where marriage comes in. You see, marriage is for God. We might say sex is to be in the service of God. Marriage and everything about it is to be in the service of God. Now, I should make a confession at this point that that strap line, because I think it's quite jazzy, I've stolen from a chap called Christopher Ash. Here's his book, Married for God. And I've basically pinched everything I'll say this morning from this book, bar some things where you think that sounds like Ollie. But... Basically, we're stealing liberally from Christopher. Thank you, Christopher. There we go. Um, marriage, then, isn't about meeting my needs, is it? Is it there? Is that there in Genesis 2? No, no, it's not. Marriage is not principally about fixing loneliness. And actually, we see that borne out in the rest of the Bible. So where we see the Bible speak of love, we see that most of all in the context of brothers and sisters in the church. Our fellowship is to be found principally in God and in the church family he's brought us into. That is the Bible's answer to loneliness. Now, of course, marriage ought to be a place of intimacy and friendship, and it ought to help with loneliness, but that's not what it's for. Do you see that? Here's our trouble. If we're single, in fact, even if we're in a relationship, we can load up relationships with so much expectation, can't we? As if relationships will fix my loneliness and my problems. And you see, it's just it's not meant to bear all of that. That's not what it's for. It's not designed for that. If you think marriage is the loneliness fixed, you see you'll be applying the wrong prescription to the illness, as it were, to use a medical illustration. Now, hopefully that's a relief this morning. 
Hopefully that's a relief if you're single and you think, I can't see myself getting married and I'm going to be lonely. The answer is no, you don't have to be because marriage isn't about loneliness, do you see? Hopefully this is a relief if you're in a marriage and you feel lonely in the marriage. Now, of course, it's not great. But you don't throw the towel in. It's not that you're lonely and somehow it's completely broken. It's not. It's sure you've got some work to do. (laughs) Get to a better place. But you see what marriage is for. It's so that we can serve the Lord. Marriage isn't about meeting my needs. Marriage isn't to be an inward-looking thing. Christopher Ash makes a great point. He says, inward-looking love actually isn't real love at all. Marriage to meet my needs kind of love isn't real love. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6? If you love those who love you, what benefit, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, do you see? Real love isn't self-contained. It overflows to others. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 16 about a beggar called Lazarus and a rich man. And the rich man ends up in hell. But what's so scary about the rich man is that he seems to have been a real family man. He loves his brothers. But this family man in hell, do you see, his, his love never extended beyond the boundaries of his own family unit, beyond the borders of his walls. He didn't have real love at all. Because real love overflows to others. We talk today, don't we, about the evils of individualism, the selfishness of society, just in it for ourselves. We lament that, and rightly so. But I think sometimes we forget that there can be something called plural individualism. Plural individualism. Which is to say we can be individualists with another person. We can be selfish with a partner in that. Do you see what I mean? As if it's only about that unit. And we can call it focusing on our marriage or me time or or family life and so on. And don't get me wrong, those are all good. Those are all good. But that is not what marriage is about. Do you see that? Marriage is to be in the service of God. So some of us need to be challenged on our thinking about relationships that we're in. Are our relationships serving God? Or are they just about serving ourselves? Some of us need to be challenged on the longings of our hearts. Are our hearts desiring the right thing? Do we want a friend, a spouse, a companion just for me? Just for me. Our hearts might need challenging, mightn't they? So look, first we've seen what marriage isn't. Marriage isn't about me and my needs. Okay? But second, let me say something about what marriage is then. Number two, what marriage is. Because our situation today is a little bit different to what Adam's was then, wasn't it? Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, the gardeners became vandals. They, they, they rebelled, didn't they? They ruined God's word, world. The gardeners became vandals. So now if Adam and Eve you know, go and rule the world, well, they're, they're vandals. <laughs> and if they go and procreate to fill the world, what are they doing? They're just giving birth to little teams and little families of vandals, if you will. More human beings now does not mean more good gardeners. What do we need today? We need, by the grace of God, to see people transformed, forgiven by the Lord Jesus, so to become his servants and his disciples in the world. We we, we need to be on mission to make gardeners, to make disciples before 
Any gardening can happen to use that, use that illustration. So our marriages then, just like all of our relationships, are to serve God, to go and make disciples, the Great Commission. Only some of us will do it differently. Married people will do it in a certain way, perhaps more complexity. Single people will do it in another way. Either way, it's about serving the Lord. Now, you might say, well, hey, Ollie, but then if I'm hearing you right, I probably don't need to be married to serve God. And I want to say to you this morning, yes, that's true. (laughs) That is absolutely true. Isn't that a relief? Isn't that a relief if you're single and you think, oh, everyone else is married and so on. You think, oh, there's nothing for me to do kind of thing. No, no. We can all serve God in our settings. You might say, hang on, Ollie. Um, But then I don't necessarily need to have children in my marriage either, do I, to to serve him? And the answer, of course, to that is, well, yes, yes, you're right. That's true as well. You can go and make disciples without having children. And isn't that, by the way, wonderful and a relief to those who experience childlessness or barrenness? You can serve God no matter what. No one is excluded. What a relief. Of course, if we are married and we are able to, then having children affords a wonderful opportunity, doesn't it? To nurture children into the forgiveness of God, the goodness of the Saviour, and raise up a new generation to share Christ. That's sex in the service of God then, isn't it? if you will. But we should say something about sex here, shouldn't we, actually? Because if if marriage is about serving God, well, how does sex fit into that? I mean, is it just the biology bit? I mean, of course it is. The Bible says it's about childbearing. But how does sex serve the Lord? Well, the Bible has a a great deal to say on this and gives a wonderful balance. Uh, The Bible says, if you're married... Don't have too low a view of sex. As if somehow it's something perhaps only for the young. Of course, sex lives will change in different phases and different stages of life, of course. But don't have too low a view of sex. The Bible also teaches us not to have too high a view of sex either, as if sex is the saviour, as if it's the answer to all my problems. Our culture thinks that. But we're not to. The Bible teaches us a great balance that sex is a wonderful, good gift of God. And it is to be at the heart of a marriage of intimacy and delight that overflows to others. So Christians will want to have sex in its right and proper place. We should say something also, I think, about how marriage works. What is marriage in terms of how it works? Would you turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 5? There's one one cross-reference today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. And it's on page 978. Let's see what marriage is in terms of how it works. Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, little verse, little number 22. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. These verses are pretty controversial, aren't they, in our culture? No one really likes that word submission or service or sacrifice. That's, that's unpopular um, stuff. But it's here in the Bible because ma- what is marriage? Marriage is to be a living illustration of Christ's love for his people. Wives are to submit to their husbands as they would submit to Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Christopher Ashe notices what C.S. Lewis says on this. I'm quoting two people now. Wow. Uh, Let me tell you what he says on this. This is uh, C.S. Lewis. The headship of the husband is not expressed in husbands doing what they like. But it's expressed in husbands whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least and is least lovable. The crown given to the husband is a crown of thorns. Lewis says that the real danger is not that husbands will grasp this crown too eagerly, but that they will let their wives wear it. He is right. The main challenge of this great passage in Ephesians is to husbands. We who are husbands need sufficient guts to be beauticians. That is to give ourselves completely in loving, serving leadership of our wives so that through our love, they might become even more beautiful on the inside. That's the pattern. Husbands, do you know this? You are committed to die for your wife. You love her in service. And wives, you submit to letting them do it. To be a partner, to support them. Christians will live out that pattern saying, our marriage isn't about us. Hear that again? Our marriage isn't about us. It's supposed to be a living illustration to the world. Here's Christopher Ash again. He says, look, men and women out there in the world... When they, when they see a Christian marriage, are to think this. I've never seen God, and sometimes I wonder when I look at the world if God is good or if there is a God. But I see that Christian marriage, and if he can make a man and a woman love one another like this, if he can make this husband show costly faithfulness through sickness as well as health, if he can give him resources to love when, frankly, there's nothing in it for him, well, then he must be a good God. And if he can give this wife grace to submit... So beautifully, with such an attractive, gentle spirit under difficult times and trials, then again, he must be a good God. Do you see? Do you see the beauty and power of it? Marriage is not to be walled in, but rather lived in community that people might see the love of Christ. Um, When the Titanic sunk, and I'm getting most of my information here from the movie, by the way, so this is as credible as that is. Um, I think this is right. When the Titanic sunk, the first lifeboats were given to women and children. I think that's historically um, accurate. In the film, I think there's a one chap, a rich, posh bloke, who sneaks onto one of the lifeboats. Is that right? Am I remembering that right? Here's my point. Christian marriage is not where there's a power struggle, where there's a fight for survival. No, Christian marriage has given roles. Husbands are to say, as it were, women and children on the lifeboat. And wives are to say, yes, I'll let you do it. No, no, not, no, I'm not letting you do it, but rather, yes, I'll let you do it. We have been partners this far. 
and we will be partners still further. And I'll back you in it. As I've backed you in it, as I've seen the servant leadership, and as I've enjoyed our partnership, I will let you do it. See, husbands do not abuse. Husbands give themselves. And wives back them up, submit to it. With one caveat, and this is important, Listen, the Bible says wives should submit and husbands sacrifice. And almost regardless of the behavior of their partners, almost regardless of whether your spouse is a Christian or not. But it's never in the face of abuse. The husband who would sacrifice his wife, and I know this can be the other way around too, of course, but the husband who sacrifices his wife rather than himself must be brought to justice. We must say that, mustn't we? Nonetheless, all this begs the question, husbands, let me speak to you. Have you done your crucifixion audit? Have you done your crucifixion audit on the way you are behaving? How do you measure up? Do you love your spouse as Christ loved the church? Cared for her and died for her. Wives, are you a noble partner to your spouse? Not a, not a bossy wife, but shall we say not a mousy wife either. Wives are not to be tyrants, but neither are they to be so pliable and so cooperative that they might as well be members of the animal kingdom because they're not real partners, you see? They're supposed to be real, active, noble partners, each in their roles, living out this beautiful illustration. Marriages are here to be on display. Our marriages are for God. Not to be locked away, private dwellings, but to be part of the church community, part of the local community, so that a watching world might see. So that the church might encourage, so that we're serving alongside one another, so that people might see Christ. Now, some of you I know have switched off at this point. Some of you here are cynics. Yes, I know you're there. And some of you are thinking, but Ollie, this just, it doesn't happen like this. Ah, it doesn't work. It's a crusty old institution, this marriage business. Can't we do without, without all that baggage? You've heard that, right? The problem with that is that it misses the place of marriage in the book of Genesis, right? God has created marriage as part of his moral order, of the world. It's part of the fabric of the universe. Marriage is an institution that God has put in place that sets structure and boundaries that creates safety. It's part of God's blessing. It safeguards sex, it safeguards children, and it safeguards order in public life. That's what marriage is. That's what it's for. Take sex for an example, okay? Marriage brings God's good order to the world as far as sex goes. Here's Christopher Ash again. He says, imagine a Christian couple come to you and they say, "Um, we want to sleep together. Uh, What's the Christian response? Uh, Christopher says, you ask them, how much do you love one another? Do you love one another enough for sex? For if you really do, then you will show that love by first making the public commitment of marriage. And if you're not ready for that public promise, then you're not ready for sex. However much you may want it, and feel that you love one another, it isn't simply a question of what or how you feel. Because love is much more than feelings. And feelings are often a very unreliable guide to love. 
Do you see, marriage safeguards sex. It safeguards sexual order, if we like. And it also makes sex safer. Christopher Ash says, sex outside of marriage is always sex with something to prove. But sex within marriage is sex under grace. Sex under a promise. There's promises of commitment have been made. So it means that sex can go badly. Or sex can go well. And you can simply laugh it off and carry on. Guess what? Because you're safe. Because you're committed. And if it goes wrong, well, there'll be another time and no one's backing out of this. We're in it. We're in this together. Do you see, marriage provides safety for children. It provides a safe place for intimacy. And it creates order. And it's to be used in the service of God as a living illustration of Christ's love for his church. It's a, it's a noble thing to be married. So let me say to you, if you are married in this room, don't disdain marriage. Don't grow tired of it, but rather remember its blessings and seek to live it out as best you can because it's part of God's good design for this world. And remember, it's not to be used for me, but for others. It's not marriage in the four-walled community. I'm going to say that again. Marriage is to be out and open, on display, with love overflowing. See, church is not to be a place where you've got your marrieds and your singles. We should never notice such a crude and unbiblical divide. Good marriages and good singleness will serve God side by side, over, love overflowing to one another in fellowship and in the service of God. If you're single here in church this morning, let me say singleness does not need to mean solitary life, does it? Nor should it be, nor does the Bible intend it to be that way. And we all, we all need to see that. Married or single, we're going to serve God differently. Married people perhaps with added complexity. And we may be here single by choice or maybe not. And we need to recognize that for some this is going to be a really costly deprivation. And so therefore as a church family, our love overflows to one another, doesn't it? We're serving Christ together and we are brothers and sisters and our marriage does not create borders. It overflows. Because that is what your life like. We support one another. Not by by the way, can I say this, not by finding um, blind dates for people. Not for saying to people you ought to be on the dating apps. No. Thank you. No. No, but by providing the fellowship that the Bible says we all need, whether we are married or not. So listen, we must conclude. What have we seen? We've seen marriage is a good gift from God. We've seen that it's not primarily a cure for loneliness. It's the setting in which we serve God. We've seen then that we need to have right expectations of marriage and relationships. We need to have the right heart for it. We've seen that relationships provide the context for children and intimacy and order. We've seen that it's a lived illustration of Christ and the church. Therefore, it's never hidden away in private. It's never a plural individualism, if you know what I mean. No, we serve Christ alongside each other. Because the real ultimate is this. There is really only one marriage you don't want to miss out on. And that's the Lord and his people. 
So if you're here this morning and you're frustrated at not being married, well, let me say this, set your eyes on your wedding day. Because the Lord Jesus says that is my wedding day too. You are not on the shelf. I love you and I cannot wait to be with you. If you're married and you're struggling, feeling alone in a marriage, well, in the conflict and the pain, remember that your marriage is a signpost to another marriage where Jesus will sweep you off your feet and take you into his arms forever. And so keep going. And if you're looking at yourself this morning, and I suspect many of us are, and we're saying, I've got loads of scars, I've got loads of mistakes, I've got loads of brokenness, I've got loads of baggage. How can any of this be for me? How can I have anything to long for? Well, listen, hear Jesus say to you, I have washed you clean, and you are my bride. And on that wedding day to come, you will be spotless and pure for eternity. I bore your scars so that on that day you will have none. See, as wonderful as relationships are here and now, as good as intimacy and sex might be, there is a greater delight still to come, which none of us will miss out on if we've trusted Christ. We will have the security, we will have the joy we will have the blessing, we will have the delight of which only sex, sex only points at. We'll have that delight to beat all marriages in this life. That marriage is the marriage of all marriages. This one, tiny. That one, huge. So might we pursue that by God's grace? No matter what our setting today, by God's grace, might we live side by side in all our relationships, serving the Lord, our love overflowing to others, no matter what our status, might we pursue that wedding day and be there to enjoy it? Shall we pray? Our gracious Father, I want to pray this morning particularly for those who are hurting in this area. For some this morning, this has been a a sensitive issue, a one in which people feel bruised already. And Father, we just ask that you would deal tenderly with those who are hurting this morning. Father, we ask for those of us who've heard a challenge. Might we work as teams, if we're married, to look at how, our, how those marriages might serve the Lord better. Father, we ask for us as a church family that our love might overflow to one another and serve you in this world. We pray in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen.